The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time, everybody. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Um, I think we have a, a really interesting show. I, um, For myself, I've often wondered what it's like to um, experience symptoms of schizophrenia. I know from my own um, working career and through my um, work as a nurse that the people who experience schizophrenia are often misportrayed in the media. I think um, I've heard people use the term split personality for somebody who has schizophrenia and that's a misnomer. I think people with schizophrenia are often um, uh, portrayed in movies and um, and in other uh, and on television as people who commit violent acts, who are irrational and some people who we should fear. And I think that it's really important for people to understand that that the vast majority of people who experience symptoms of schizophrenia um, are just like the rest of us. Um, they have hopes, they have dreams, um, but they have a brain that works in a different way. And they um, and our understanding of schizophrenia is really um, minimal from the individual's perspective. And we're very lucky today to have our guest, Christina Morgan, who is a poet with a Master of Fine Arts from Arizona State University. She is currently working and managing her co-occurring disorders, which include schizophrenia and alcoholism, with medication and with uh, 12-step recovery. Mind Without a Home is her first book. And during in, in this book, she um, she illustrates for us what it's like to be inside her head when she's functioning, and we get to listen to the to the voices, if you will, that are being played in in her head from her early childhood until um, most recently when she read the book. So, thank you for Christina for being on our show and for um, being willing to share with everyone um, your experience to help break some of the stigma and. Um, stereotypes that we have about people who experience schizophrenia. Absolutely. I'm glad to be on the show. I'm, I'm really happy to have the opportunity to dispel some of the myths. I think um, it, in reading your book, it's, it's very interesting. Um, your, your family history is, is very interesting, and I think um, it's pretty common for a lot of us. Could you share uh, with our audience a little bit of what it was like um, to grow up as Christina? Um, sure. I, um, I was terribly shy. I didn't want anybody to see me or to look at me. And when you're 13 years old and six feet tall, it's really hard to go unnoticed. Um, I, um, was terribly fearful. I didn't feel like I fit in. 
I didn't feel good in my own skin. I knew something was terribly, terribly wrong, but I didn't have any idea what it was that was terribly, terribly wrong. And, um, and, uh, I was just, um, I was not happy growing up. I, um, I lived in an alcoholic home, which I didn't know or understand until I started, um, with 12 step programs. Um, both of my sisters are riddled with drug abuse. Um, my mother died from alcoholism. Um, what else would you like to know? Well, I think it's important um, for for people to understand that in reading your book, you first began to experience other thoughts early in your, yes. I mean, almost yes. before you were 13. And I think, um, and you didn't feel safe talking to people about them. No, not at all. I was very good at hiding what was going on with me. I very much didn't want, um, I mean, it was my brain and I, I kind of knew how it worked and I was really afraid that if people knew what was really going on with me inside my brain, that they would want to put me on medication. And I don't know really where I got that thought or that idea, but I was terrified of having the brain, no matter how hard my brain was in working right. I was terribly um, scared to have it altered with any kind of substances and um, the, was it a voice that you heard, or was it you described the first person who was inviting you to join his consciousness, or to, to I guess, um, kind of um, describe death as being something peaceful where you could have what you wanted and be who you were? Right. They and never used, it was more than one voice, and they never used the word death. It was okay. always about traveling to the fourth reality. I knew how I needed to get there, and that was by what are here in the, what I call the common reality, that, that the word for the fourth reality is death in the common reality. But um, when I was, like, confused in my mind, when the voices were talking to me, I couldn't differentiate being in the fourth reality and being dead. I couldn't combine those two. It was always like, you can go, Christina, to the fourth reality if you do A, B, and C, and then you can come back when you want to. And that was the part that um, I had to learn was a lie, was that I could come back if I wanted to. Because when you're dead, you're dead. Right, right. Was it, um, was it always the same voice, or was it different voices? Different voices. And did those voices stay with you over time, or did they change? They stayed with me over time. They get different depending upon how stressed I am and... And now it's a lot different because I'm on medication. Um, but uh, they'll, like, now with being on the right kind of medication cocktail, they're more like um, a hum. And the words aren't really that clear, except on days when I'm really stressed. And then they'll they'll say things like, like they'll, they'll, they'll mimic what I'm doing by saying what I'm doing. Like if I'm reading a book, they're going to go, oh, you're reading a book. If I'm eating, they're going to go, oh, you're eating. Oh, you hate lettuce. Blah, 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 blah. Like that. Mm-hmm. So um, your first attempt to go to the fourth dimension was when you were how old? Fifteen. Fifteen. And could you share with um, our audience what your experience was when you were in the emergency room? Because as a healthcare provider, I think um, it was very illuminating for me to to read what you had written. Okay, yeah, it was terrible in the emergency room. Um, um, nurses, uh, just my experience is that people don't like to 
work with people that have just tried to commit suicide because they're working with people that are ill all the time and dying that they don't um, have any respect for people that have tried to take their own life. So they're rather mean about things. Um, is that the experience? Is that what you mean? Yeah, and, and that you were, um, it, not so much that you were trying to take your own life, but you were trying to get to this other dimension. Right. But Which at that point you didn't see you, you didn't see it as something as final as death. Oh as no, not at all. Trying, trying to escape the what just you were the common reality. Yeah. What I call the common reality. I was just trying to get out of the common reality and escape to that fourth reality and then come back when I wanted to. And that's the part right. that I had to learn was not gonna happen. It took me a long um, time to learn that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> How long did it take you? Um, oh, God. Even today, like, when I, I'm relatively um, living with good health for me. So um, I'm able, I, like, think about the things that I think about when my brain is really sick, and I think about how it's so different now. And um, it took me probably, well, when my brain is really sick, I still believe I can go to the fourth reality and come back when I want to. And when my brain's not really sick, then I um, understand that that's not possible. But it took me it took me years. I mean, I'm 49 right now. It's hard to believe I'm 49. I never thought I'd see 21. Um, so I'm 49 right now, and it probably took clear into my 40s before I started really believing that. Right. And I think that's typical for a lot of people who experience schizophrenia as they reach their 40s. Sometimes their brain seems to quiet down a bit and, they're, and, and things, they, they seem to get a better handle on their symptoms. Uh-huh. Um, I, I would say that um, what's helped me mostly aside from age is the fact that I'm on Clauseril. Mm-hmm. Clazarill was, I had taken like every single antipsychotic there was to take along with Thorazine and Stelazine and all the old ones and then all the new ones. And then the last one for me to have been put on was Clazarill. And since I've been on Clazarill this last, um, I think it's been about seven years, I haven't once gone to the hospital. It's pretty amazing. I used to go to the hospital every two or three months. Wow. Wow, that's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful yeah. that you've been helped so much by that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been able to do things that I thought I'd never be able to do, like travel. Because um, Guy, my significant other, he would want to go travel, but he would always be afraid that I was going to break down. And so he never went anywhere because mm-hmm. we were always waiting for me to break down. And, and that's not really a very pleasant way to live life. And, um, and now that's changed radically since the cause rule. So you've been able to travel more. Yeah, been able to travel more, be able to make plans to do things. Um, what made you decide to write a book? Um, I have always written. Um, <laughs> the book started out as, because I'm a poet, I primarily um, uh, describe myself as a poet and not a prose writer. I'm a poet, and the book started out as a long poem um, about six years ago. And, um, <clears throat> and I, um, uh, writing for me is a very God, God-like thing. 
Like I feel like I've been gifted and I've been plused with certain things. And then that I have a responsibility of taking the gift and allowing it to um, mature. And um, writing for me is like one of those things. It's, it takes me out of myself and allows me to be in a place where there's no voices, there's no negativity, there's no, there's nothing bad going on. It's just a, a really clean way of being out of myself. And then writing, um, it, it's just always been in my life. I, I can't only, I can't really say how it is I came about writing or why I started writing. Um, as a kid, I used to write notes to my parents to try to get them to understand me, and they would just laugh. <laughs> so I wasn't very successful in getting them to understand me. Um, <clears throat> and now... It's just something, I, I, there's somebody that said, I think it was Isaac Dennison that said um, that he owed God a favor and his favor in in um, paying that debt was by writing. And I really believe in things like that. Um, so there aren't a whole lot of folks that have um, described what it's like to experience symptoms of schizophrenia. Um, did you see a beautiful mind? I did, and I um I didn't know anything about John Nash before I went to see that movie, mm-hmm. and um, when it got to the point in the movie where I thought he might drown his baby, I was going to leave. I was totally going to leave. I couldn't handle it any longer, and, um, and my friend said, no, Christina, it gets different. Stay. Stay, and it gets different, and I'm glad I stayed, and I'm glad it got different, but yes, I did see that does, movie, and I really liked that, that movie a lot. Does it replicate what people experience, do you think? Yes. Okay, we'll be right back after this commercial with more with Christina Morgan. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. 
Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your, your host for today's show. And our guest today is Christina Morgan, who is a poet with a Master of Fine Arts from Arizona State University. And she is currently working and managing her co-occurring disorders, which are schizophrenia and alcoholism, with medication and 12-step recovery. Christina has written her first book called A Mind Without a Home, which is a memoir of schizophrenia. And um, Christina... Christina, you really open yourself up in your book, um, and and I applaud your honesty and transparency. And I was wondering if you could share with our audience a little bit about your substance abuse and how it progressed into alcoholism. Okay, sure. Um, I grew up in a home that um, I always say we're half Greek, so of course we're going to drink. Like the Italians, they drink. And um, in my home, alcohol was always available to me. Um, There wasn't any kind of age uh, limit on whether or not you could drink and um, <clears throat> alcoholism I mean excuse me alcohol was um, something I loved I loved um, Robitussin I think was my first introduction to alcohol I loved drinking Robitussin the cough syrup right then and there I should have told me something but I didn't pay attention I was too young but um, anyhow I, I drank all throughout um, through the end of my of middle school into high school um, alcohol for me uh, did what I wanted it to do by making me not care about anything because it just seemed too painful to care about things. So with alcohol, I didn't have to care about anything. And um, <clears throat> and my, uh, my um, substance abuse progressed to where it was a daily thing. And, um, and for a long time, like I said, it was my, it was my uh, medication. And I didn't have to struggle so hard with my schizophrenic system excuse me, my six schizophrenic um, symptoms um, <clears throat> in the, with when the alcohol was working and, um, and then alcohol stopped working. And um, when I got sober, I felt um, really lucky that I got really involved in a 12-step program um, that gave me ways to cope with life that also seemed to help me cope with my schizophrenia, which at the time I did not know I had schizophrenia. I just knew my brain was not right. And um, <clears throat> and so in my early sobriety, I, I got sober when I was 18 years old, and in my early sobriety I didn't let anybody really know what was going on with me. And, um, and it turned out that I really didn't need to let anybody know what was really going on with me because being brand new in the program and having all of these new things open up and reveal themselves um, kept me really grounded for quite a while. Um, <clears throat> later on in my sobriety, I hit a point where 
um, the 12 steps were no longer working for my schizophrenia. And so I decided that that was it. I couldn't live any longer with, um, with my brain. And, um, I ended up relapsing one night, night that where I was planning on jumping off of a cliff and I really would have been jumping off of a hill. And it occurred to me that all I would do is roll and break an arm. So I, um, didn't jump and somebody was there to help me get back home. Um, but is that like, is that the kind of stuff you want to hear about when I'm talking about my alcoholism? Yeah, I think it's important for our audience to understand that um, early on, I mean, uh, drinking was something that was normal in your house and it was um, it was acceptable and that like a lot of folks, um, from what I read, that your your house became like party central, you yes. know, where it was a way to yeah. socialize parents, and be accepted yeah. and popular. And um, Yeah, definitely. My parents were um, sweethearts in high school. They married right out of high school and it's like they never stopped partying. Parting was very important to my home. Yeah. And how old were you, Christina, when you first experienced symptoms of schizophrenia? Um, I, I <clears throat> the first time I experienced symptoms of having some kind of mental issue was when I was 12. And I told my father that I was really, really tired and I was too tired to go on. And he just laughed at me because he said, you can't be 12 and exhausted. And I was 12 and exhausted. And, um, and then as far as the voices and stuff, by the time I hit 15, um, I was dealing with that. Um, again, I, I didn't want anybody to know that I was dealing with that. And I thought for some reason this was just my cross to bear. <clears throat> and um, um, I'm sorry, I forgot the question. I just wondered how old you were when you first started to have symptoms of um, schizophrenia. Okay, I'd say 15. I had symptoms then, of like major depression by the time I was twelve. Okay, and when how old were you when you first had a drink? You said it was Robitussin. Oh, I mean the first drink, drink. First drink, drink would have been before the age of five, finishing okay. off drinks at parties. Okay. Um, getting sober at eighteen is that's wonderful. I mean, that's not yeah. an easy thing to do. <clears throat> kind of. Um, it, uh, I had two um, overdoses pretty much right in a row when I was 18 that um, ended me up in a psychiatric facility, and um, I was there for nine months, and um, that's where I was introduced to 12-step, and um, and so yeah, just having that, having it be a life or death matter, kept me in the 12-step program, and one one thing. In regards to my alcoholism and my schizophrenia, I feel really blessed that I, I didn't. I see people come in today that are really, really sick mentally and don't understand their mental illness at all, and then they're trying to get sober on top of that, and they have a really hard time making it. So I feel blessed that I was like given a reprieve in early sobriety from experiencing my my psychiatric symptoms to the extent that I did later. So I was able to get sober, and then I was able to have um, some structure in my life and, and steps to live by. Um, I just feel very lucky about that. I hope that makes sense to you, what I just said. It makes total sense. It gave you a foundation and a spiritual connection Yes, to, to, to help. You know, you said you, you felt very um, strongly that your writing was a gift from God and that... 
I mean, without recovery from alcoholism, you wouldn't even be able to understand that. That's right. You're right. Without, you know? it, it's interesting because I don't know if I would have gotten help for my schizophrenia if I hadn't first gotten help with my alcoholism. Why do you think that is? Um, uh, probably because, like I said, that, that early, early 12 step stuff gave me a reprieve where I was able to see outside of myself enough to have some kind of life. And then that eventually stopped working too, where I did need to take a look at my mental conditions <clears throat> and um, and uh, face my schizophrenia. But I had that reprieve in the beginning when getting sober. What was it like for you to be 18 and sober in your family? <laughs> I didn't. Ha- my family and I were we were estranged from each other <clears throat> pretty much. <clears throat> Um, but, um, they, they would have rather had thought I was very, when I got sober, I weighed only like 120 pounds at six foot tall. And so they really, really wanted what I had to be an eating disorder and they didn't want me to have alcoholism. And so it was kind of funny because when I was back living with them after the hospital, we would, we would go to family therapy and they would want to talk about my eating disorder. Well, I didn't have an eating disorder. I had alcoholism. And um, and the psychiatrist that was running our groups kind of ended our sessions without knowing it. He wanted to see my mother on her by herself. And my mom was like totally freaked out that the psychiatrist had said, I really need to see you one-on-one. And um, so that ended us going to any kind of therapy because any, any, anybody pointing any fingers at my parents or, uh, or their drinking or anything like that, was that was bad. That was bad. So um, I didn't really have that much support in getting sober. But what, what they really, they, what my dad really believed, though, is that he believed that when I drank, I never knew if I was going to overdose, which is true. When I drank, I never knew if I was going to overdose. And so he was glad I had stopped drinking because of that, because he was tired of seeing me overdose on drugs. <clears throat> and this is not drugs as drug usage. This is pills over the counter, like Tylenol. Tylenol, which is very bad for your liver. Tylenol is very bad for your liver. It can kill your liver. Yeah. 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 Um, so when you got into 12-step, um, and you know, I know, at least in New Hampshire, Initially, when we opened up our co-occurring um, disorders program, you know, there was some, um, I don't know, some people in the halls who really weren't comfortable with folks talking about their mental illness. And now we're at the point where when, when we go to meetings, we hear our, somebody say, well, everybody's got a dual disorder because so many people in the halls struggle with depression or anxiety or, or um, you know, bipolar disorder or and, or schizophrenia. So, um, did, have you ever felt safe there with your with um, talking about your mental illness, or is that something you separate out when you go to the? No, I um, I feel like it's important for me to share my whole story because I know that if I was listening to somebody that had gotten sober and 
stayed sober and had schizophrenia and was out there living life, if I was like still in my bed hiding behind the covers because I was too paranoid to leave the house, um, I would want somebody to tell me, hey, you know what, you don't have to live that way. And so when I share in 12-step meetings, I don't do it all the time. I only... I, I do it only when it feels appropriate. Do I also share that I'm schizophrenic, have schizophrenia? And um, again, when I feel it's appropriate, I'll also share that I take medication. Um, if I'm asked to speak, I always share about those things as a speaker. Um, and I'm not always well-received. Um, some people are thrilled that they can identify with me and that I'm talking about things that they're afraid to talk about. And then there's other people who are like, you're not sticking with, um, uh, what tradition would that be? Um, that I'm not not sticking to the, to just talking about alcoholism, but I'm straying off topic, even though in my life it's all related. Well, and the irony of it is in Bill Wilson's life, um, he struggled with depression and maybe even bipolar disorder and worked for all kinds of ways to help with his um, mood disorder. And we'll be right back after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Why do people behave the way they do? The study of human behavior is one of the most interesting facets of life. Human behavior gets played out in a limitless number of ways. Now, there's a radio program that explains the why and the how of what we do. Human Behavior, What a Trip, is hosted by Dr. Jonathan Brower and will include interesting guests as well as call interaction from people like you. Let's have fun with this together. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Christina Morgan, who's sharing with us um, her recovery from schizophrenia and alcoholism. Um, before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about um, what it's like to go into 12-step meetings and, and have a co-occurring disorder, and, and Christina shared with us her experiences about that. And I'm wondering, Christina, what was it what did you feel when somebody first told you you had schizophrenia? What was that like? Um, it was really strange. I felt horrified and extremely relieved all at the same time. I was horrified because I knew that meant that I was going to have to take medication in order to have some semblance of recovery from schizophrenia. And then um, then I was I was excited that there was something wrong with me that had a name and had symptoms and had solutions and, and, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was was mixed. Um, it was very mixed. Yeah. What, um, what was your feelings when you realized you had, you were an alcoholic? Oh, (laughs) um, that, that's funny. I, um, it, I was amazed. I had, I had no idea I had alcoholism, and here I was drinking like a pig at the age of 18, and I was going through several roommates in college at a time, and um, my last roommate, before she left, she looked at me and she said, you know, you're an alcoholic, and I just laughed, and that was the first time that anybody had ever called me an alcoholic, and um, <clears throat> I called my dad up, and I said, Dad, you won't believe this, but my roommate just called me an alcoholic, and he said, as long as you don't drink by yourself, as long as you don't drink daily, and as long as your teeth are good, then you're not alcoholic. Well, I had one thing going for me. I had great teeth. So that, <laughs> that carried me for a while. Um, but then when I ended up in a psychiatric hospital and I ended up in the substance abuse program, still wondering really what, what I was doing there, um, when I finally accepted the fact that um, I was powerless over alcohol, my life started to change. So I'm glad, again, for God giving that, me that awareness. Um, you, you've mentioned um, medication, and I'm wondering, um, you've been on a number of medications. And, yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience, being going from one medication to another? And, sure, um, it was I terrible. I would think there's a um, sense of hopelessness with that. Um, it was, they, uh, like they say, it's a practice of medicine, and definitely in psychiatric uh, with psychiatric illnesses, it's, I would consider it definitely a practice of medicine. And um, I, they put me on all of the old-time antipsychotic medications. Um, they didn't work. Um, for a while, I was on some of the newer ones that weren't very strong, and um, I was able to show up in my life a little bit better on some of the newer antipsychotics, and then eventually those failed me too. And... Um, <clears throat> Finally, at long last, I was willing to take the one that I hadn't taken, um, which was Clozeril, and Clozeril changed my life. I started taking Clozeril about six or seven years ago, and I haven't been hospitalized since. And before that, I was going in and out of hospitals every two to three months. And um, and it just when I when I see people first diagnosed. I don't know how to tell them, just hold on. The ride's going to be a, a good ride eventually. Just hold on. And um, <clears throat> and one of the things that takes a long time is finding the right combination of medications that are going to work. 
nobody has any magic wand or can see in the crystal bowl. And the medications in and of themselves aren't a magic wand either, are they? No, they're not. And I also, that's something I also like to share about is that I can't just sit there and do nothing. Um, I, I, this changes for me all the time, but right now I'm saying that medication is probably 70% of it and my actions are probably 30%. Sometimes that changes for me and I really believe my actions are more like 40 or 50%. But I do know that, um, I have to take action in my own recovery. I can't just sit in a chair and think that the medication is going to take everything away and I'll be just fine. What do you do in addition to taking medication to help manage your symptoms? I'm sorry? What do you do in addition to taking medication to help manage your symptoms? Oh, um, I work. I have a job that keeps me focused on things that I can focus on. Um, I do a lot of deep breathing. Um, My writing is structured so that I write a certain amount of time every day. I have a very structured life. That's the first thing I would say that keeps me on track is I have a very structured life. I get plenty of sleep. If I don't get enough sleep, I'm in trouble. So I miss out. I miss out a lot of times on things that happen at night because I need to be in bed. Um, How much sleep do you need to be to function well? At least nine hours. And um, that's the one thing that I hate about Cosrel is it makes you really, really tired. And if I didn't have any place to be, I literally would sleep from eight in the evening until noon the next day. That's how it, how much it knocks me out. But I say I need to, I need to at least get eight or nine hours of sleep a night. And, and you notice a difference in your stress level when you sleep more, or do you oh, are you more alert better. when I sleep more? It's definitely better yeah. than when I sleep less. And I've heard that with other people too that have schizophrenia that sleep is extremely important. Right. I, I know a man who says sleep is his best friend, and he'll take a nap during the afternoon or whatever, but he really he really believes that um, the better quality sleep, the better he's able to function. Absolutely. I would agree Which with that. true for all of us. Yeah. Especially folks that have schizophrenia. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, we've learned, or, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but... One of the things they teach teach um, people in, in healthcare about folks experience schizophrenia is that um, is that it it doesn't get better, and you're certainly a clear example that it does. Um, I uh, I don't know if I would say that actually. No. Um, if it was if it was like all totally gone, mm-hmm. then I would say that it got better. But now I just say that I know how to manage my symptoms. My symptoms, excuse me, my symptoms are still the same symptoms that I had 20 years ago, but they're just, uh, I don't know how to explain this. Um, Life gets better, but my symptoms don't necessarily get better. Does that make any kind of sense to you? It makes sense. It makes sense. So as you learn to cope with your symptoms, the quality of your life improves. Correct. Okay. And as you're recovering your alcoholism, the quality of life improves. Correct. Um, what about uh, sometimes people who experience schizophrenia have a hard time with interpersonal relationships? What can you 
to say about that. I did um, initially have a very hard time with that. I was um, I was afraid people were going to find out about me. Um, I was afraid to look people in the eyes. I was afraid that I couldn't have any regular kinds of conversations because at the time when I was really sick, I was talking in ways that people couldn't understand me. Um, <clears throat> and then AA again, AA stepped in, and being in the oh shit, that's okay. Um, being in a twelve-step program. Stepped in and provided me with the kind of support I needed to learn how to be- develop social skills. Because in 12 step group, you're constantly around people. And I would watch other people and how they would interact. And then I would try to copy that. And eventually it became comfortable for me to be in the world around other people. And I started having friendships. And um, my friendships today are amazing. I have, um, I have lots of friends who would, who would, um, definitely be there for me whenever I needed them. And um, I've had a partner now for <clears throat> 12 years, I think. We had a little on again, off again a couple times in our relationship, but it's pretty much been solid 12 years. And um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think that does. I think, um, you know, when, when we talked before um, we started doing the show today. I asked you what was something you wanted people to walk away from the interview with, and you said hope. Yes. And all the things you are describing are things that can give people hope. Getting on the right medication, being sober, uh, being able to manage your symptoms and work, and being in a long-term relationship. Yes. Those are things everybody aspires to. Yeah, and it's interesting because as a person that has um, mental illness, we have people usually have like a case manager and some kind of plan. And the um, when you, when they're writing up your recovery plan, they include things like housing, they include things like relationships, they include very basic things <clears throat> that <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> include very basic things that most people take for granted actually think that of that they're you know uh, of course they're going to have relationships and of course they're going to have a house and of course they're going to have a job and of course they're going to do of course they're going to do all those things and and it doesn't cross their mind that they might not that might there might come a time that they won't be, be able to do those things whereas people in the mental health community have had the time when they weren't able to have those kind of things and then, um, and then it happens, and they have them, and it's magic, and it's glorious. It's totally fantastic. Did you follow that? I did. It's very exciting. I think that, um, I think, and sometimes a little bit of what you're saying is sometimes we take things for granted. That people who struggle with mental illness um, look at these things and they're a gift. I mean, you know. Like Absolutely. you said, people expect to have these things. And when you have a mental illness, you have significant challenges that can prevent you from having a relationship or having a, a stable housing or, or working or even being able to be sober. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, when you... You're going to 12-step meetings. Are you also involved in any type of support group for folks that have mental illness? I, and, have, you know, um, I have a woman I see once a week that I've been seeing for seven years now. And um, 
I refer to her as my spiritual mentor, and she's a great support for me. Um, there has been times uh, years ago when I belonged to different programs, like I would belong to um, an art program for some time where they had open studio where you could go hang out all day long and do art. Um, I've gone to programs, day treatment programs, where you attend several therapeutic kinds of groups <clears throat> during the day. I've, it's, it's, I've had various, I've, I've had, I think I've tried probably everything there is to try in the mental health community, and some of them have been very good, and some of them have not been very helpful. But for the most part, I think they've all, they've all brought me to where I am today, so I would have to say that they've, they've been helpful. Okay, and we'll be right back um, after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is Christina Morgan, who has written Mind Without a Home, a memoir of schizophrenia. And Christina has been very open with us about her recovery from both um, schizophrenia and alcoholism. And uh, Christina, when I first worked at a mental health center a long time ago, I remember one of the um, my supervisors saying to me, because I was coming to a mental health center from an addiction background where there was a lot of talk about spirituality, there's a lot of talk about higher power, and being told you can't talk about God or higher power with people who have severe mental illness because it'll distress them and it'll make them more symptomatic. 
I have since learned that that's totally wrong, but um, what's been your experience with a higher power? Um, I can, I can kind of understand the person that told you that. Um, I can kind of understand where she was coming from in the sense that when I'm, <clears throat> when I've been really, really sick and people have wanted to talk about, um, well, some, some people like to talk about psychic things mm-hmm. and, um, unworldly things along with talking about God all in the same time. And, um, that, when I'm really, really sick, is not beneficial at all because it um it makes me start thinking that the best thing for me to do would be to travel in other realities and to talk about talk to these people that only I see and to talk <clears throat> with them telepathically and and all of that stuff. And and when I'm really, really that sick, um, God is like not in my immediate world. But once I start getting better, God becomes extremely important and um. And so, um, how do I explain things like this? Like, well, this is an example um, with the books that came out. People people say to me, Christina, aren't you proud? And I'm like, pride doesn't make sense to me because I really believe that we're all living in a divine world and we do what, what God asks us to do. And, and, and the, the, um, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, oh. I can't think of what I was going to say. Um, that we live in a in a divine world and we do what God asks us to do. Yes, and that um, I I believe that if we get out of our own way, God's always responsible for what's in our life, and it's always going to be something very good. And um, <clears throat> and I like with my illnesses, the alcoholism and the schizophrenia. Um, have to I can't I can't like take care of both of those things they're too big for me but I can approach them in a godlike way where I think God is taking care of them for me and then I can relax a little bit and feel a little bit of peace and walk out into the world and be okay Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes total sense. Um it's like the footprints in the sand. Yes. Yes. Um, the poem there, yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar uh, with that. And and I know that um, just from the, um, the addiction side, if you will, spirituality is a huge part of people being able to get good quality recovery and, and have uh, better lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. They say in the 12-step program that that's, that's what it's all about is God. It's it's all spiritual. Yeah. However, the person defines that um, higher power. For some people, it's God, and for some people, it's something else. Correct. And I went through a phase where it had to be something else. I was hanging around a bunch of very radical feminists who um, despised the word God for whatever reason, and um, and I got really confused as to what I was going to be calling my higher power. And um, I was explaining to my sponsor one day, I don't know what to, I don't know what to call God anymore. I don't know. It should it be Goddess? Should it be God? What should it be? And he said, I had a male sponsor at the time, and he said, um, they just call it banana, banana this and banana that and banana this. And I thought that was so ridiculous that I eventually got back to just calling God God. But um, but I did go through a phase there where I didn't know what to call my higher power. 
Which but I think it's is all good. Common. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. What about service work? Are you involved in service work? I am. I um, sponsor a couple of women, and um, I still uh, I can I consider it being service work just to be sitting in a meeting. I still go to meetings. I've been on um, <clears throat> on the um, 17th of this month. I'll have 20 years of sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And so I still go to meetings, and um, I still show up at conferences. Um, as far as, like, both with my alcoholism and schizophrenia, I get asked to speak sometimes places to um, people that need a little ray of hope, and so I do that. And, and those doing those things aren't easy for me. I'm not, I'm not very um, – <clears throat> I'm much more a writer than I am a talker. And so it's it's I'm I'm not really very comfortable talking um, in front of groups of people, but I do it anyway, and it always works out to my astonishment. <laughs> I don't faint. Well, that's good. Yeah. How can um, people get a hold of you if they would like to talk to you? Maybe they have their own experiences, or they would just like to learn more about yours. Yeah, I'd love to learn about their experiences too. Um, I have a blog. Mindwithoutahome.com. Mind without a home is just all ran together. So www.mindwithoutahome.com. And then my Facebook page, um, I'm pretty sure it's Christina with a K. Christina spelled with a K. Um, Christina Marie Morgan or Christina Morgan, one of those two. And people can contact you at either. Yes. So um, for for families out there who um, are um, experiencing um, a son or daughter who may be having, you know, their their early episodes of schizophrenia and alcoholism, what would you say to them? To the family members? Yes. Um, Don't give up. Um... Know that there's hope. Um, know that there's as much support for them as there is for their son or daughter. And that it's good for everybody to each participate in their own recovery. Have it be like a recovery household rather than just one person that needs to go do something. But have it be about the household. Um, and just just love unconditionally. That's... That's a lot to do when somebody you're seeing somebody suffer. Um, yeah. And hey, what about for the individual, the young um, woman or man who's going through what you went through? Oh, hang on to your seat. You're in for a hell of a ride. <laughs> um, do your best to find somebody you can talk to honestly and openly. Um, for sure, bring on board the whole the whole thing from the nurse to the psychiatrist to the case manager, just go ahead and seek all the help that you can get. And you're, it's better in some states than others, but there's a lot of support out there really for people that are having mental illness and alcoholism, especially when they're young. And I don't know why I said that even any age actually, but, um, but there is a lot of support. You just have to have somebody help you find it. And be open about what you're experiencing. Don't be afraid to share with somebody. Absolutely, right. 
Thank you so much, Christina, for spending this hour with us. It's kind of flown by, and you've done a great job. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Have a good me. week, everybody. And we'll uh, be talking to you again. Thank you. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.